It is probably fair to say that Stuart Green has worked on nearly every commercial musical and play or cinema release that has played in Sydney over the past 40 years. His front-of-house role has afforded him an opportunity to observe up close the shows and personalities that have occupied the hallowed temples that are our theatres. Stuart is also a dedicated archivist and historian with an ability to fire off statistics regarding our lost theatre heritage in Sydney. His passion takes him around the world to visit live theatre venues and he continues to get the same thrill he did as a five-year-old entering a theatre for the very first time. It's always a delight talking to Stuart and inevitably a valuable history lesson. We chatted about the theatres that once existed, an impressive list of personalities including Marlena Dietrich and Dame Julie Andrews, and reminisce about the now-gone Her Majesty's Theatre which played host to many great musicals and where Stuart first started working on the opening night of JCW's production of A Little Night Music. It's a beautiful apartment. It's very quiet, isn't it? Yes, the, um, the Wyndham Studios here is, uh, <laughs> is good. Uh, there, there's a little bit of truck noise we might hear occasionally. But it's all at that, they sold that off two years ago to the government. Now they're just building on all the parkland, all the open space. Yep. Makes you sick. Building up. Yep, stinky. Similar to what happened to a lot of our theatres. That's right. Well, yes, I'm very bitter about that. Still very bitter. All right, well, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Mr. Green, Mr. Stuart Green, you're yeah. sort of... <laughs> you, you, you're a very familiar face uh, amongst theatre-goers. Yes, I'll say that, yeah. In, in Sydney. I'm, I'm not just talking about live uh, theatre, I'm talking about cinema as well. How old are you now? It doesn't matter, people you're are listening. very good. Oh, we're oh, there already. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no. Thank you, thank you no, very much. I um, moisturiser of a morning helps, you know. So that's well, good. I didn't put me on because of the heat. Oh, and it's a good thing that we're not. There's no visuals here. That's right. You could have put a shirt on there. <laughs> <laughs> this this bare-chested <laughs> interview. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Um, Look, you've worked uh, probably in nearly every theatre in Sydney. Is, would that be right to say? No, not every. Well, the ones that are in... I worked at the Madge, the Regent, the Royal, um, the Majestic at Newtown, the old Elizabethan. As a matter of fact, I was the last person to work there before it was callously, deliberately burned down, the Elizabethan. What do you mean you were we the last a, person to work well, there? Well, we had... They used to loan all the ushers out. Uh, so, and of course that had been closed the manager at the time was a fellow called Tony Mars I don't know if you've heard of him right. and he just rang Mr McPhee up and said we need ushers for Sunday night we've got a Yugoslav concert on there were protests and everything and I remember uh, getting up on a ladder and hanging out over the boxes fixing all the festoons up in the boxes because it hadn't been open for a few months and of course a week later it burnt down so oh, um... I risked my life on those boxes fixing the festoons for nothing so that was um, the last gig in that venue. Yeah. Um, so, any was there any suspicion about the fire or? Oh yeah, it was deliberately lit because the fire doors were all open. As you know, the laws even in those days when a theatre is closed, fire curtains supposed to be down. Fire doors were all supposed to be closed. The state, when we lock up every night, everything's got to we've got to check all the fire doors are closed, fire curtains down, so forth. Uh, that the match was the same. Um, everything was open. Fire curtain, fire doors. All open to fan the fire. Was it was that common that um, you know in, in losing some of those theatres, especially during the the seventies and the eighties, I yeah. suppose, um, that there were sneaky sort of yeah, lots of sneaky things. Well, the Regent was the same. They bought um, demolished that had a, great, a ban on it. The uh, builders' labourers wouldn't demolish the Regent, so Mr. Fink bought them over from New Zealand. To demolish. Yeah, because right. they weren't union members. So would a lot of um, those theatres have had um, heritage listing? Not in those days. Not in those days, no, right. No. right. The, print, the regent did, but the, the, we had a change of government and the heritage order was lifted right. to appease the developer. Um, now, you're a local boy, aren't you? Yes, you're a Sydney boy. Where did you, where did you grow Sydney. up? I was a shy boy. I grew up in Gaimia. Gaimia, where you were? Uh, Kiriwee High School. Right. Gummy Bay Public School. Did you have siblings? No. Oh, no. I did. I've got a half sister from my father's first marriage, but when I was born, she was always she was already married. Right. Were you um, a performer as a child? Did you? No. Did you be in the school I, shows I, I, and all that sort of oh, thing? Oh yes, I was. I actually starred 
in Artisan Antics at high school. In, in what was it called? Artisan Antics, right. which was Mr. Burke, our English teacher, wrote a sort of a send-up of Midsummer's Night Dream and right. called it Artisan Antics. And I was the star of that. So we were you, were you pass or bottom? <laughs> no, I was actually, I can't remember what I was now. Um, but we did an inter-school competition. We went to Orange with it and performed it in Orange and at Gami Bay Public School Hall. Fantastic. So, yeah. And then, uh, you know, but I was always a theatre fanatic. My mother used to rue the day she took me to the Prince Edward Theatre, which was Sydney's first, considered first American style movie palace, uh, built in 1924, closed in 1964, and uh, it's that's on the site where the new metro station is being built in Martin Place now. So it'll be very, it's 50 years ago since the Prince Edward was demolished, over 50 years. But it'd be very interesting if it was there now, would it be getting demolished for the new metro station? Because the site is, the office block that was built on the Prince Edward site is now being demolished for the new metro station. And the Prince Edward was a 1,500-seater, um, you know, like miniature of the state. And my mother took me to see a houseboat there when I was five years old. And from that day on, she used to say, I rue the day I took you there. You're always fanatical about curtains. Because in those days, the theatres all had two curtains. They had the main curtain and the silvers. Uh, chandeliers and organ, because the Prince Edward used to have a an organist there, Noreen Hennessy, who played there for 19 years right up until it closed. Uh, and she was always in black satin or black velvet dresses with pearls, bouffant blonde hair, and I still have that obsession with mature age women when you see them in that sort of dress <laughs> like that. And you were five. five. So, so you remember that experience I pretty vividly. Do, yep. And I've seen documentaries since on the, the uh, Prince Edward and everything that I remembered as a child was exactly as it was. So uh, I imagine, you know, this obsession, you spent a lot of time in cinemas as, right. as a youth. As a child, every yeah. weekend would be spent at the movies. So, cause, so we, are we allowed to talk, what, decades? Oh, yeah, this oh, is, this is uh, well, I was born in 54. <laughs> so, right, so we're talking so, the 50s, 60s, which yeah. is a time when a lot of Australians, you know, that was, everybody went to the pictures. That's right. And that we that had, was a major form of entertainment. And we had the single cinemas. We had all our big movie palaces still. We still had the Regent, the Plaza, the Capitol. The Capitol was a second-rate, uh, second-run place, so you used to go and see all your reissues because there was no video or DVD. So you would see the films with the major films would be reissued every four or five years. So you always had a chance to see Santa Music, Mary Poppins, Dr. Zhivago, uh, all those big films of that era. That, oh, the Ten Commandments used to always be reissued. Um, every every Easter, they'd have the Ten Commandments every two or three years. Well, this is a period that's so, tied up with the, the golden age of Hollywood that's too. Right, so you're yeah. seeing those great so big mega I was lucky enough to be able to see all these movies in these movie palaces. And of course, the big 70 mil films were presented as live like all of the musicals of that era, they all had overtures, intermissions, intermission overtures, exit music, and programs. So you could buy a program at your film. Hello, Dolly, all those all had programs, which I have naturally meticulously collected all my life. Got a huge collection of film programs. So it was certainly an occasion. I mean, yeah. if you're going for an overture... You're... Oh, that's right. They yeah. used to even dress the ushers, because it's hard to comprehend now, because movies now are nothing. Like, you go to a, you go to a complex in the morning now, and there'll be 50, maybe 50 people in the whole complex. Whereas in those days, there were four sessions a day, and they would be chock-a-block. You wouldn't go to a, a like the Mayfair was a thirteen hundred seater. That's where all the seventy mil stuff went. Hoyts had the Mayfair. Um, Sound of Music went there. The Graduate Cleopatra was there. That had an eighteen month run. Sound of Music went for three and a half years in its original um, release because they didn't spread them out through the suburbs in those days. They used to call it a roadshow release. So those big seventy mil films would go into a cinema and sit there. You couldn't see them anywhere else. They wouldn't put them in the suburbs until later. So they were event films, as I said, with programs. They would um, dress the ushers in periods, so you'd have your program sellers and ushers looking like the Von Trapp family. Oh, really, really? Yeah. Or Cleopatra, they'd yeah. all be dressed yeah. as... Um... Yeah. That was all, it was a very, because as I said, roadshow release, city screening only. You only could see it in the city, so everyone would come into the city because we had all the department stores still then. We still had all the, you know, Grace Brothers... Um, 
um, uh, farmers. Um, where else was there? Oh, David Jones. Um, oh, there were stacks of, you know, what's the other one? Anthony Hordens. All those were still going. So uh, you would all come into the... Oh, Mark Foyes was still a department store then. So you'd come into the city for the big day out and you'd get dressed up. Um, and of course, I, I suppose this is the way that a lot of Australians first saw the world. That's right, because people didn't travel as much in those days. So they got most of their travel stuff and their uh, overseas views of countries and everything through Hollywood, all those films. Yeah. I know you're too young to um, remember newsreels, are you? Well, no, because the state newsreel stopped doing newsreels in 1969. Oh, OK. So, so they, they played in cinemas for quite a while. Yeah. And that was news of the day or news, news from around for the country? The, yeah, for the, right. of, of the world, because uh, the newsreels, of course, in the old days were local and international, they'd go for half an hour continuous. But by 1969, when they were petering out, they were usually uh, just first, you'd go to the, the movies in those days, you'd have featurettes. If you if it was a 70 mil super spectacle like Dolly and Fall the Roman Empire and all those, they were full features and they were treated accordingly. No commercials, only a trailer or two for forthcoming 70 mil attractions, that was it. Um, and... Uh, that was it. With normal films, you'd get a, a first half of featurettes and a newsreel and a cartoon. Right. Then you would have an interval, which was for the candy bar sales, and then they stupidly even cut that out. They don't do that now. You just go and have trailers and ads, 20 minutes, half an hour of ads and trailers, and, and then the movie. And pay $100 yeah, for, your, so they've cut, for your sweets yeah. and drinks. So they've even killed the, the candy bar trade, except right. now, of course, they let you take everything in and sort of that's one of the another death knell for me of course because I don't want to go to a cinema with people stuffing pizzas and all that stuff down there god which they are now allowing so you've got hot food you think they could stop for two hours no it's really interesting because even at the state now with um when you have shows at the state we actually have performers now requesting we close the bar Jimmy Carr a few weeks ago no bar service it puts me off I can't stand people getting up and down Wandering, so we had to close the bars when Jimmy Carr. So was what's that? There. What's that about? Do audiences have a, a shorter concentration shorter, oh, span oh, now because of technology don't, don't and social media? It. It's and dreadful. When you work in a cinema now, when you work at the Orpheum, they come out to it. They buy the largest drink and largest popcorn, and then about forty minutes into the movie, they're all going to the toilet. Then they go to the toilet. They see you behind the bar, and they're straight back over that bar. So it's in, out, in, out. It's everywhere now. It's unbelievable. Shows the same thing. They pay two hundred bucks for a ticket. The show starts 20 minutes later, they're out at the bar buying drinks and stuff. It's crazy, isn't it? The show is secondary. Look, I'm I'm sure you're... Well, I know that you're like me. Then You know, I hate to miss an overture. I I wouldn't think of walking out mid-performance or whatever. I mean, especially the ticket prices that you pay. I know, and they're in out... Not in New York. It's interesting in New York. They go and watch a show and they sit and watch it. Well, it's a culture about... This country is unbelievable. Mm. In, out, in, out. So, so, you know, your your cinema-going experience in the, the, the 50s, 60s, Yes. We're, we're talking big screens as well, that's aren't we? Right. You know, we're that's the disappointment with a lot of the multiplexes right. now. You've got, they're no bigger than your TV screen right. at home, some of them. Well, as you know, my tours at the State Theatre, we have boards of the Lost Theatres of Sydney. So we show people, and people can't believe what Sydney used to have, because we had a theatre district just like London, New York. And I think a, a lot of those theatres were located in the CBD area, they is that were, right? They yeah. If you look up near Centrepoint where the State was... Um, down just around from the state there was the St James Theatre which was built as a live venue that was an 1850 seat live theatre built by the Fuller Brothers Uh, then right opposite there was the Embassy there was the Mayfair with one little building in between then the next block further down there was the Royal then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal then the Savoy uh, then around the corner... Oh, then, of course, the original Her Majesty's was on the corner of Market and Pitt Street, where Centrepoint is now. Then just up from there, we had the Liberty Cinema, the Lyceum, which, of course, showed the first talkie, the jazz singer, um, and that was owned by the uh, church. I was, uh, I was fascinated, you know, to read that we had a, a hippodrome and... That's right. Al- uh, a a, a theatre called the Alhambra and the Adelphi. That's uh, right. The Royal Australian Circus. That's right. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, it was a different era, though. No television, no computers, no Westfield shopping centres. So they could... Um, phones. They thrive. All cater for the audience yeah, that yeah, was there. Mm. Yeah, but it's all changed now, of course. Big time. Yeah. Um, 
but even with cinemas, I was fascinated to see that we had cinemas called the Boomerang, the Century, the Crystal Palace. That's right. The Globe, the Roxy. That's right. The Mecca, the Khartoum. We still have the Roxy at Parramatta fighting now to be turned into a live venue. That was built as a cinema, but it did have a stage. Well, it, it was cut in half by... It was tripled, actually, by Hoyts in the 70s, but done in a way that it could be put back. Well, it's owned by a fellow now that wants to demolish the back half of it, uh, put an apartment block over it, uh, and use the stalls as a shopping arcade, and then just leave the circle there as a 700-seat venue, which is totally useless. So there has been a committee formed now to try and get the government, because the government wants to build a new riverside. They want to knock the existing one down, move it on the other side. We're talking Parramatta. Parramatta, right. and build where they are, where they're putting their new powerhouse museum, which we don't know if that's going to go ahead yet, but they want to build a new theatre there because they need a proper theatre at Parramatta. The riverside's too small. It was always too small. Uh, the idea of the riverside was to get larger companies like the Australian Ballet and that to tour out there, and then they go and build a 750-seater. Well, you can't expect ballets and operas to go to a 750-seater. So uh, they are, there's a move to get the Roxy restored back to a 1,600-seat theatre, but, of course, the government, because we have a government at the moment that's very anti-heritage, they want to build a new theatre. They can't see the worth in saving a building that has four heritage orders. It's got the same heritage orders as the capital, the state, uh, the Minerva at King's Cross, and so forth. So if they can knock the Roxy down, then the state and others and it's interesting the as you've probably noticed the Minerva at King's Cross has been up for sale I didn't know that yes that has uh, the same heritage protection as the state yet in their advertisements for the sale of it they were saying uh, ideal apartment site subject to council approval amazing I know the last live theatre built of the original live theatres in Sydney Sydney has demolished every live venue that was built in the middle of the city is now gone except for the Minerva. People say, oh, we've got none of our original live theatres left, but we do the Minerva, which has been a film studio for 30 years. It closed in 87 and was going to be turned into a supermarket, which it did. They turned it into a supermarket. It only lasted three months. And then George Miller bought it and has used it as a film studio ever since. All right. Okay. It's totally intact. Right. Totally. Right. All but they did was level the floor and he's used it as offices in a film studio. So, so the architecture of a lot of those um, cinemas, was it all Art Deco or was no, there no, a variety no, no. of architecture? No, state theatre is not Art Deco. Well, Wake up to yourself. <laughs> you know well, there are elements. Wouldn't, yeah, there is. Say? Yes, yeah. the estate is there. revivalist architecture, right. which mix and match lots of styles. So the state, when you get there, you've got the Gothic foyer outside, which is Gothic. You walk into the Empire Room, which is French. Then you walk into the uh, rotunda, the round foyer, which is Italian Rococo inspired, all topped off with Art Deco floors because um, uh, revivalist architecture in this period, they love mixing and matching. And remember the psychology of a, of a movie palace, they built all these things. It's interesting, I do a lot of school groups at the state. And when the, the first thing the school groups ask is, they say, why was it built like this if it was built in the 20s? Why does it look so old and everything? Uh, and the uh, psychology of the movie palace was, we don't sell tickets to movies, we sell tickets to theatres. The theatres were designed to attract because the movies in that era were black and white. No such thing as colour. The only coloured movies were hand tinting. Uh, the screens were very tiny, little 20 feet by 20 feet square screen. So the movie palace, which was basically invented by a fellow called Samuel Rothfeld, whose nickname was Roxy, who built the world's largest movie palace in New York, the Roxy, 6,500 seats, with a 110-piece orchestra accompanying the silent films, three organs, because the auditorium was so big they couldn't, there wasn't one organ could fill that space, so they they had three organs in the pit along with their 110-piece orchestra. Um, it was all about showmanship, getting the people in through the cinema. So they used to advertise the state. If you look at all the advertisements, the state was advertised as the Empire's greatest theatre. Uh, they used to advertise the chandeliers, come and see our chandeliers, the Australian Art Gallery upstairs, the statues, the work of arts and all that sort of thing. The capital was an atmospheric, which replicated sitting outside in an Italian... Uh, courtyard, you had the stars in the ceiling, you had the clouds projected. It was all about getting people to your theatre through the decor. An experience. Yeah, an experience. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've been on that tour at the state with you, which Ooh, is absolutely yes. uh, fascinating. Sensational, of course. Um, and the general public can go and do that that's anytime. Right. They do it bookings. all the time. But the thing that struck me about, you know, uh, walking around the, ca the, um, the state was mm. the camp <laughs> toilets. 
I mean, they're outrageous. Each There's about four toilets, bathrooms six, we went into. Six, we have the butterfly room. And they've all got a different theme. That's right. We mm. are the only theatre in Australia. They all had smoking rooms because you couldn't smoke in public in the 20s. So all the theatres had smoking rooms, but the capital even just had plain smoking rooms, whereas the states are all themed. We have the... And, of course, in this period, masculine, feminine. Men were masculine very stereotyped women were feminine so all our smoking rooms for the men the pioneer room looks like a log cabin with stone walls and timber uh, the empire builders room which is all wood panelled features portraits of the prime ministers of the time that can you know um, sort of help the empire get to its greatness so that's why it's called the empire builders room then upstairs we've got the college room which used to have logos of all the public schools of sydney which unfortunately was stolen about 20 years ago we had them there right up until a rock concert and someone went and took them all out stolen uh, then of course we have the women's rooms the butterfly room which is undergoing a multi hundred thousand dollars restoration at the moment they painted that over in 1934 all the butterfly panels they're all being restored 14 layers of paint and one layer of wallpaper which was put in 1980 but now they've got all the paint off they've discovered all the panels were sanded they used to be oil paintings on linen uh, and they sanded them all to get a flat texture to paint over them in 1934 so now they've got a go and touch them all up and paint over them. Uh, then we have the Pompadour Room and then the Futurist Room, which has just been restored, which is all Art Deco. And it's interesting on the tours, the only ones I get them in that room and I say, why would this room have been called the Futurist Room? And, of course, the schools are really on the ball. They say, oh, because it's Deco and that Deco was just coming in. Oh, OK, that was the... Um it was new. That was a new the thing. Deco. So the, the futurist room doesn't match the state at all. It's totally alien to the rest of the architecture, and that's why it was called futurist room. And the schools are very ball. I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages. Don't forget to investigate other Stages podcasts featuring conversations with creatives and artists about their careers, processes, and what matters to them. Leading lady of the Australian stage, Geraldine Turner, reflects on the challenge and responsibility of leading a company, often on a long tour. And there have been times in my life when I haven't come up to the um, the place I should be in, in leading the company. I've always led the company, but, you know, I've been a brat sometimes too. And, you know, as far my as private leading life... Leading by example. Or... Yeah, my private life has taken over and I've been, you know, quite mad. But But... At times, but That's still, a, a mature, is that earlier in your career? Though? I That's suppose so. I'm thing, certainly not that now. I'm not that person <laughs> now. But um, yeah, um, I think I've always had that ability to lead a company, and I don't even know what that is, what the definition of that is. But I think I do have that, and I, I'm very much aware. I'm very inclusive and want everyone in the cast to be great and I'm not one of those people who I'm the leading person and I don't care about anyone else and I'm not giving you a moment you know I can't stand those sorts of performance you know um, when we talk about uh, uh, the use of 3D and cinemascope and that's right uh, yes. you want, can you talk about some of that the right. uh, well, various of course, ways the of first widescreen process 70mm believe it or not was around in the 30s William Fox who um and 20th Century Fox actually made a movie in 70mm called The Big Trail with John Wayne, which I've got on DVD. They've actually put the two versions out, the, the standard screen, which was still square in those days, and the 70mm one. But, of course, the um, cinemas were still getting over the Depression and the fact they had to equip for talkies because, remember, talkies came in, so they were all the running silent films, yeah. Then the talkies came in, so then all the cinemas had to lay out all this money uh, to put talkies in, to put the sound equipment in for their for the films. So they, William Fox released this film in what he called Grandeur, which was 70mm, and of course the, the um, rest of the studios and the cinema owners in America refused point blank. They said, we're not putting new screens in and new projectors and new lenses when we've just had to adapt for talkies. So it's very interesting because when you get it on DVD, the image is amazing, but the sound is still crappy because 1930, 31, it was still tin can sound. So you've got this beautiful 70 mil image with this really tinny, shocking sound. So uh, that was canned. And then, of course, 70 mil was reintroduced in the 50s to fight the introduction of television. So uh, in America got TV a lot earlier than us. They had television in the late 30s. 
So their cinemas by the 40s, the war years and everything was still good, but once the war was over, their attendance has started dropping. So they came up with the first widescreen process, Cinerama, which was three projectors projecting, uh, photographing the film and then three projectors in the theatre. And, of course, Cinerama was huge. That was introduced in 1952. And that was a screen which enveloped the audience? curved screen, wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling, three projection boxes... Um, joining up the image, you couldn't. The only trouble is with Cinerama only lasted ten years because you needed five projectionists. You needed a projectionist in each box. You needed a sound man for the seven-track stereo sound, which was separate to the three reels. So he had to coordinate that. And then they had a fellow in a booth at the back of the theatre to uh, make sure the joins coordinate. And you couldn't see the joins. And, so not, and not every film would have been filmed in that no, format no, no. either. There were only like about 3D. ten. They had the first lots were travelogues. They did five travelogues. There were only about eight, seven or eight. I know Hollywood only did, they did five travelogues and two story films. Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm with Richard Beimer and the big all-star cast of Scrabbaganza, which was the last cinerama, How the West Was Won with Debbie Reynolds. I actually had the thrill of going over for the cinerama's 60th anniversary. They had, because the Cinerama Dome, there's only three cinemas left in the world that can actually show cinerama properly. The Cinerama Dome in Los Angeles, the Cinerama in Seattle, and one in Bradford, which is part of a museum. So um, we went over, and it's still got a wow factor because when those curtains, because you know the Cinerama Dome shows 70 mil and sort of digital, but uh, when they showed those films in Cinerama, the audience was, you know, oh wow, look at it. And of course, then they came up with single lens Cinerama, which was 70 millimeter blown up. Because, as I said, the cost of Cinerama was too expensive. It was too expensive for using the three cameras. They have all been reissued now on Blu-ray in Smilebox, simulating the Cinerama curve, because the screen, from the edge of the screen to the middle, was 20 feet. So the first four rows of seats at the dome actually are in the curvature, so you've got the screen right around you. So that's pretty breathtaking, the old Cinerama films. They're hokey now, of course, the... The bloody travelogues are so boring, but still, we went over, it was a Cinerama festival. First of all, there was the anniversary of How the West Was Won. Uh, I saw that, it's 50th anniversary, then 10 years later we went over to the Cinerama festival and we had to watch all these Cinerama films and I didn't realise they were so boring, but of course in their day they were travelogues. They were the height yeah. of entertainment, yeah. yeah. And we had star- guest stars there because Richard Barmer, as I said, was in... Um, he did a talk before Brothers Grimm and he brought two friends along with him, Rita Moreno and George Shakiris, because all these people live in Hollywood and the old stars now love the attention yep. because they're forgotten. So yep. when you go and see a, a film in Los Angeles now, they do all... We had My Fair Lady. Uh, they had a 70 mil screening of My Fair Lady with um, the last star who played Carthy Theodore Binkle. He died 12 months later, so he was there doing a talk on My Fair Lady. He's the last person that worked on that film alive at the time. He, they're all gone now. Uh, so we had a 70 mil screening of that. He was there. Then, as I said, we had a 3D. We went over for the 3D festival, Kiss Me Kate, with Catherine Grace, and Catherine was there doing a talk and so forth. And then Anne Miller was at one of the screenings doing a talk on her thing. So, And they, re- they were really approachable, so friendly. I was in Los Angeles at the Best Remaining Seats. They do screenings there every year in Los Angeles in all the old movie palaces because they're mostly churches and they're all closed up except for the Orpheum in downtown LA. Uh, So there's 17 theatres in downtown LA but they're mostly not working. Uh, So they open them once a year for a once-only screening so the public can see them and it's a, a fundraiser for the... Uh, LA Conservancy so they get all their money to operate through the year through all these screenings and they sell out $20 a screening in a 2,700 seat cinema like the Orphan that's how they make a lot of money out of it and they get guest stars and I was backstage waiting to get my seats I was helping because my friend uh, over there has a theatre curtain collection which is stored at the Orpheum so uh, the top two floors the six floors of dressing rooms they restored four floors of and the other two floors are all his curtains are up there and they know when he dies they get them so they use them all the time if you've ever seen Bette Midler's Gypsy yes you will see some of Steve's curtains in that uh, if you've seen The Artist yes there's Steve when I saw that I didn't even know they'd used Steve's curtains. It started and they were in the Orpheum and I said, oh, there's one of Steve's curtains. So he hires them out to films and everything. And I was standing uh, backstage talking to, because they had a screening that night of On the Town. Uh, And Anne Miller was going to be the guest artist, but she 
fell ill and she said I don't, I don't want people seeing me on screen like this I'm not feeling well I'm not looking too good so they had to get Betty Garrett who played the cab driver in it so I'm backstage stupidly and of course she was married to Larry Parks Jolson's story and they also had Jean Kelly Patsy Kelly Jean Kelly's last wife she always she's made a living of presenting his films around America and doing talks on them before the thing and everything so she's made a Everywhere you go, Patsy Kelly presenting such and such. So I'm backstage talking to these two women, not realising I'm talking to this Bruce and me standing there. And then uh, about 20 minutes into it, she says, oh, what's your name? I said, oh, I'm Stuart. This is Bruce. And what's yours? She said, well, I'm Batty and this is Patsy. I said, oh, what an idiot. I said, I've been talking to you for 20 minutes and didn't realise who they were. Either. But that, that must be an extraordinary thrill because these are faces that you've grown That's up right, with watching exactly. on the silver screen She's and now you've got now. to meet them. Betty's passed away now yep, too yep. Yeah, and Annie's passed away. Uh, another one that I don't know if you've ever heard of Nanette Fabre. Yes absolutely. She's in her 90s now. I met her they did one of her films there met her. She was I think she might have passed recently the last Not few she, weeks. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh. See, that's the trouble now. They get a little thing in the paper now when they die. Mm. I didn't even know recently Bruce Barry. Remember Bruce yes, Barry? One absolutely. of our Great. big stage big stars. Big stage stars, yeah. And I didn't know him until I went to the Helpman Awards and they did their in memoriam. And I'm sitting there and Bruce Barry passed away. Yes, it's always a big shock when you... I, know, uh, I couldn't you, believe you haven't, it. Like, just, known. you know. So it's, you know, all forgotten now. It's very sad. Yeah. But, but but look, I know in your your work in Australia, also in in theatres and in the front of house and uh, other such jobs, you've been assigned to various look stars, stars to look after them. Right. And I know that um, you uh, worked with Dame Julie Andrews. That's right. Recently, which was oh, a big thrill. Certainly was. Nearly had a heart attack over that one. Because <laughs> what happened with that is because I have lived and breathed Julie Andrews since I was a kid when I saw Sound of Music and Mary Poppins. Uh, and actually, they did a sing-along Mary Poppins when I was in Los Angeles. And I had the thrill of meeting the Sherman Brothers because my friend with the curtain collection, he said, we're going to go to see the sing-along Mary Poppins. They'd, re they'd launched it as a big deal at the El Capitan. And we didn't realise that um, Dee Dee Woods was going to be there, the choreographer on Mary Poppins, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Slipper in the Rose and everything. Uh, her husband, Mark Bow, I think he must have passed away because he wasn't there. I haven't seen him. I've seen Dee Dee a few times now at things. And they're also friendly. See, nowadays the new stars are totally unapproachable. There's no way you would go near Madonna or Tom no. Cruise or anyone. No. They've got so much security around them. But all those old stars, you do the stars tours. You go and look at Tom Cruise's place, you can't even see it. surrounded by 50-foot bushes and big iron gates. Same with Madonna's place. Whereas you go and look at Gene Kelly's old house and Lucille Ball and they're straight on the footpath with lawn and everything, you know, far more approachable. They didn't have the media scrutiny in those days. And um, uh, where was I again? Oh, yeah, so anyway, we're, we're standing there and Steve said, oh, there's there's the Shermans. Quick, let's go over and talk to them. Well, you can imagine me um, because I grew up with their movies and all yeah. their music. And we're standing there talking away like, you know, he said, oh, hi, this is Richard and shook hands and everything. And they were so friendly. And half an hour later, we're standing there. Then they yell out, oh, Dee Dee, quick, come over here. We've got an Australian here. And it's fucking Dee Dee Woods. And I'm sitting there, standing there, <laughs> nearly wet myself. There are many more interviews in the Stages Archive where we talk to directors, designers and drag performers. Actor-producer Trevor Ashley considers the doubt that has sometimes niggled at him and confesses to what it is that he really craves. I, I have doubted myself a few times, but not often. I think I doubt respect. That's the thing I doubt. I sometimes feel like I'm an industry joke. Really? Yes. What, what, what makes you think that? Because I'm so ridiculous and because I do drag and because it's not legit and it's not, you know, I don't know, that's how I feel and yet I've been told by many people that that's absolutely not true. But I think that's, that's the nagging feeling. Not nowadays. No, really. They're just there for the money now. That you can't talk to you anymore, mm -hmm. and you couldn't. And even the last years of the match, uh, the dancers, the people like we used to get. We had no green room at Her Majesty's. You remember the downstairs yep. bar? That yep. was. That the was the room. gathering place. So when you had a musical in like 42nd Street, you'd have 40 in the cast, you'd have 
60 week backstage, 30 piece in the orchestra, 30 piece orchestra, uh, and they'd all be out the bar afterwards. So we'd be talking theatre all night. It was like going out every night. It wasn't like working. Working at Her Majesty's for 27 years was like going out every night for 27 years. Um, and the same with the Royal, but the Royal didn't have the bar, the bar wasn't open afterwards, so but it was like party time. Yeah. And you could talk theatre all night. To anyone? Yeah. And they stayed there. Yeah. It was great. Tell me about uh, Marlene Dietrich. This magnificent walked on the stage and you just go, oh, fuck, wow. I couldn't believe her. But sadly, didn't she break a leg in Australia? She did, yes. Right. The first night, she was in for two weeks. Right. And the first night she was rotten drunk. We were an hour late starting. The crits were really cruel to her. I remember Bob Rogers saying if she smiled too much, that she had so much makeup caked on her, uh, her face would crack. That was not true. She was beautiful up close, beautiful, mm. lined, as anyone at 74 would be, mm. but still stunning. Um, and uh, she was drunk, but they had a, the show, was they had Bill and Boyd as the support. I can't believe they put <laughs> Bill and Boyd as the support for Marlene Dietrich. But anyway, that was the Australian content. We were an hour late starting. I'll never forget it because I had to take stuff. They said, can you get coffee out there? And she was in the dressing room, like, you know, comatose, the poor thing. And it was obvious on the first night she was pissed. She was slurring and, you know... But they said she was very nervous about the fact that she was being so criticised and the tour wasn't selling. So what happened was she did the first week. Now, they used to mop the stage every night because the Swan's Down Cape, they used to do a lot of preparation. They used to get all the flowers in and because every night she'd be presented with flowers. And uh, they, she used to get the ushers to do that. There'd be a male and a female usher on either side. And then you would be, they'd wave and say, right, take the flowers out. So uh, on the Saturday night, Lynn, the head usher and myself were chosen. They said, do you want to do the flowers tonight? And I said, oh, yeah, we'd love to. Well, that was the last night she performed because she fell over on the Monday night. So what are no Sunday shows in those days? So on the Saturday night, I'll never forget it, I'm on the side of the stage 15 minutes before the show finishes with a frig, big bunch of flowers watching Marlena from the wings. And, you know, like for me, live audience, of Pinch course. Me. I mean, a live band, um, orchestra and everything. And when she was sober, she was phenomenal. She was, well, she had the audience like that. Uh, so the next night she was fine. She was sober the rest of it. It was only her opening night, tragically, that she was... How was the leg broken? How did she break it? Well, we think it was staged. John, Don McPhee, our manager at the time, said, I think something's going on. I said, why is it they haven't ordered any flowers this week? And they're not doing all the preparation. We think uh, she was supposed to fall, collapse on stage. This is what we all surmise, because there was no preparation. They didn't even mop the floor for the Swan Down uh, Cape that night, uh, on the Monday night. The tour was going so badly, we think they were going to stage a collapse with exhaustion and right. cancel the tour, so they didn't have to cancel through lack of tickets. And she didn't fall properly. Yeah. Right. She came out, I'll never forget it, she grabbed the curtain, sort of, because she used to come out and grab the curtain, sort of thing, and she did the thing, and then just went straight down. Yeah. Now, during the, the, the during the run of the Australian production of Le Cage Folle, mm. um, Arthur Lorenz came right. out to see the show, who was the, the um, yes. original director. Um, and he used to drink at the bar. Were you working on Le Cage? No, no, I'm not, I'm not that old. Oh, thank you. Yes, he used um, to come to the bar. Right. Um, but... Um, he was an extraordinary fellow. I mean, he can be cantankerous, apparently, all reports say, but you got on quite well with him. He was very friendly at well, because he was getting drinks, wasn't he? So <laughs> he was very nice. And also Jerry Herman, he came out for Lacage, and he also came out for Jerry's Girls. Right. So um, I met Jerry twice. He was really nice, Jerry Herman. He was lovely. Arthur was nice. But Arthur, didn't, didn't he say that... Um, in Australia, um, the production of Lacage. Yeah, we had different costumes here. Apparently, they were more same costumes, but right. more tarted up and colourful. Right. Because remember, flamboyant. Uh, flamboyant. Yeah. Mm. So ours was a camper version of Lacage. Then if that the Broadway can, if that can happen. Well, that's happened with a few shows. What was the show I saw in New York? Oh, look at that dreadful Priscilla in New York. Did you see Priscilla in New York? No, no, no. Oh, it was like it was terrible. Really? Wasn't yep. ca- well, ours was so naturally camp and over the top, and it was just different. Well, it was that. It changed that, it all. Australian psyche here. Um, oh, and that, Aladdin. That, that larrikin sense of humour, yes. which they, they changed it drastically for a New yeah. York audience. Yeah. And Aladdin, the Disney's Aladdin in Australia. All my friends that have seen in America, and they've been out here, Brad, when Brad was here and everything, he said, oh my God, this is so much better than Broadway. Because Broadway, you see Aladdin, I've seen it twice on Broadway, straight as anything. There's no campery, no camping it up. 
seed in Australia. So the genie, the, you know, at the end he says, I want to be a choreographer and he gets the scarves out and twirls and does a big curtsy. None of that in America. But I saw it in Los Angeles this Christmas and they're doing all that now. So the Los Angeles version is camped up like Australia. So they're copying the Australian version. Isn't that great? Yeah, very interesting. So when when did you begin working in theatres? Was that always your in, uh, no, your no, day job? No, no, I did it by accident. I was working at Angus and Coot right. in the city. Was that an accounting firm? No, no, it was no. a jewellery store. Jewellery store, yeah. They're course. still around, but they're small now. They were taken over 20 years ago by Pascoe's in New Zealand. So they own Goldmark. Angus and Coot and Prouts, the three are all owned by the same. So anyway, I used to travel around doing all their store openings because at that stage I had an expansion thing. So I used to travel right around Australia doing all their store openings. And I used to get all my soundtracks and Broadway shows because in those days, a lot of the Broadway stuff was not put out locally. You had to get it from America. So there was a shop in the city in Rose Street called Rose Street Records. Oh, this is long before Ava and Susan's? Yes, long before Ava and Susan's. I'm only old enough to remember (coughs) Ava and Susan's, I don't remember. What what was it, Rose? Rose Street Records, which Rose Street is the lane that ran up the side of the... It's still there, but it's cut in half now by the MLC Centre because the MLC Centre pulled the old Royal down uh, and the Hotel Australia to build... Well, Rose Street used to run right up the side. The Theatre Royal used to come out onto Rose Street. So anyway, and then their stage used to back onto the laneway now where the Royal, it runs up the side of the thing that used to be there backstage. so, uh, Rose Street Records, I go into Rose Street Records to see about my Ten Commandments soundtrack, which I'd been waiting. You used to wait months and months. Sometimes you'd wait 12 months for these orders because they used to say, we can't just order one record. We've got to wait so we can order a lot. And you'd wait and wait. I go in and where's Wes Ladd, who ran the shop, uh, I said, God, you're looking tired. And he said, oh, yeah, I've just started the new Her Majesties. They're in previews for a little night music. So there was a week of previews. I started on the opening night, believe it or not. How crazy was that starting a new person on your opening night? But this was the era when, like nowadays, to go get a job at the Opera House, you've got about 20 pages of questionnaires, psychological tests, three interviews and everything. Whereas all I did was I go in to get my, to see if my soundtrack's there. And I said, oh... And I was only 19 at the time, but I still remember it because this was like a a gift from heaven to me because he said, oh, we've got, they want us to do eight shifts a week. And he said, I'm so tired. He said, I can't do this job and eight shifts a week. And I need someone to split my shifts with. The manager said, well, you know, if you want to cut back, you're going to have to get someone to split the shifts with. Oh, I'll do it. <laughs> so he said, really? And I'll never forget. It. He said, yeah. He said, well, can you come down tonight and meet the manager who was Clive McKellar, who was married at the time to Rabina Beard? You know, Madge. Yes, you're soaking in it. Yes. And uh, so I go down that night and um, meet Clive. No interview even. He just said, oh, when can you start? And I said, oh, when you want me. He said, can you start tomorrow night? We've got opening night tomorrow night. I said, yes, certainly can. So that was it. And I'll never forget it. I was on the OP side with Deborah James, who was the daughter of... Barbara James, who was J.C. Williamson's publicist at the time. Right. We became very good friends. Working in, in live theatre, so it's mm. you you must be blessed. You've seen every oh. Australian production of every big commercial musical, I, I imagine, since well, since um, A Little Night Music. I'm very bitter because it's like the match never existed now, but you think of the shows there. Oh, the match. Open with Night Music. Right. Irene uh, with Julie Anthony, Noel Ferrier, Joan Brockenshire, then we had Pippin, with Johnny Farnham, Colleen Hewitt, Ronnie Arnold, Ronnie Arnold, um, Nancy Hayes, uh, and Ronnie was lovely. He was always friendly. Then, of course, we had Corey. Oh, then we had Marlena and all these one-offs in between. Kamal, <laughs> he did his. Uh, oh, um, there was an electricity strike on. I, I made lifelong friends with the Rudis uh, girls because in uh, we had three weeks of Barry Humphreys at night, and two two shows a day of. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs put on by the Rudis organisation. You know the Rudis people? Yep. And their two daughters were in that and they got a job afterwards as an usher there. They said, oh, when Snow White finished, any work as ushers. So we put both them on as ushers. And they used to do backflips for us across the foyer and everything. So the Rudis is, of course, their father, Tibor Rudis, was Pavarotti's manager. And when he went back to America and so forth, he used to do the big Las Vegas shows. And... um, so yeah, we had, but that was amazing because we had two full houses a day of Snow White and then Barry Humphreys at night, full houses. So three full houses a night for three weeks, no air conditioning, because oh. it was a, an air, uh, electricity strike on, so you weren't allowed to use your air conditioning because we had all the doors open. It was terrible. Place reeked. 
But uh, I, I, I was there with you. We started on Beauty and the Beast. That's right. And then we had the fabulous original season of Boy From Oz. That's right. At what, world premiere. What was the... Jolson. Jolson was there, yeah. What was the last show to play The Match before uh, It was play? a... Well, what happened was The Match closed. People forget. Everyone's bitter about, oh, why did they close it? Boy From Oz, after Boy From Oz, like that sold out 11-month season. We had nothing for six months after that. Hmm. Uh, same with Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast did nearly 12 months. Nothing for about eight or nine months after that. So we had gaps where there were no shows. And thank God we had the stakes because we'd go back to the stakes. And the Royal. See, yeah. that's how I got into the Royal because, um, well, I started the Royal when that opened too because they needed staff for their opening. So um, we used to sort of, when the match was closed, we'd go to the Royal or the Regent. The Regent would sometimes ring up and say, uh, can we borrow some staff? And as I said, the Elizabethan. So, um, but you think of the shows of the Magi after Chorus Line, like, like Chorus Line, people look at Chorus Line and they say, what's the big deal, young ones? That show was mind-blowing. When I first worked on that, I was still ushering, I wasn't doing bar then. Oh, I never forget, just was knockout. You nearly fainted watching it, like it was just, you know, that Paul's monologue. Yeah, that was yes, absolutely, beautiful. for that mm. period, mm. mind-blowingly ahead of its time. Mm. People don't get that, that how advanced and like ahead of its time that show was. Then, of course, we had all the John Frost musicals. Hello, Dolly with Jill Perryman. King and I with Hayley Mills. Beating in time with the orchestra because she couldn't sing to save herself. Um, you'd be on edge with every time she opened her mouth to sing. Hayley was beautiful and she was beautiful to look at and beautiful actress, but she couldn't sing to save herself. So it was hysterical watching that every night, thinking, oh, she's going to get through the song. Um, what else? South Pacific, Andre Joban and the girl that did the voice in Beauty and the Beast. Um, oh, I can't remember her name now, but they didn't talk to each other. Paige? Paige O'Hara, yeah, yes. that's right. They hated each other. So that was hysterical. They were farts backstage with that one and them screaming at each other. I still remember that. So, yeah, there was Hello Dolly, King and I, uh, South Pacific, and, oh, Big River, another John Frost one. Oh, yeah, one. yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, the 42nd Street with Todd McKinney, Leonie So Page. some really big shows That's that right, were there. And um, So what exactly. was it? Do you, the last show there? Oh, the last show was for the Olympics. What happened was the match was, we knew it was going to be demolished. They'd sold it. But the government wouldn't let it be pulled down. They wanted a cultural thing for the Olympics. So we were closed for six months. No shows for six months. They had to hold up demolition until a show came in for two weeks called far side of the moon which they made a movie of it eventually and believe it or not they were setting up for that show and one of our head mechs one of our stagehands got killed and oh. set up a counterweight jumped out right. jumped and squashed him and that's the first accident that that theatre had ever had that's um so that's about 20 years ago that it closed down it closed in 2000 well I mean it was a funny old building architecturally in there it was quite brutalist Brutalist. would you say now you see this is tragic because it was pure unadulterated brutalism just as the opera house is the Mm. Seymour Centre and of course Sydney's knocking all these brutalist buildings down and the match was absolutely like the bricks were hand they were made specifically they were acoustic bricks they were glazed acoustic bricks so the match was built before Amplified Sound, because the first Amplified musical was Promises, Promises, which was at the Royal. But amplification still wasn't big for shows when the Madge was designed in 1970, because remember the old theatre burnt down in 70. The Madge reopened in 73, uh, 30th of November 73. So it took three years to build. Uh, everything was a one-off for it. The bricks were ha- were made specifically for it. Uh, when they designed, when you look at the brief for Her Majesty's, uh, they said, and on the brief it says <coughs> that eventually this area is going to be high rise, so we want the theatre to look attractive from every angle. So the whole theatre was built inside and outside by these glazed one-off bricks made specifically for that building. So even the back of the fly tower was all these glazed bricks. They tiled the roof. The roof was concrete. The whole theatre was soundproofed. I mean, it was as good as the Opera House as far as the building because it was built, the last theatre in Australia, built by a theatre company, J.C. Williams, for a theatre company, so they knew what they were doing. Um, so the uh, not only was it soundproof, it had a concrete roof, but they put beautiful grey tiles on it, and the same with the fly tower tiling. So did, if you saw it from up above, it looked attractive from whichever way you looked. Uh, all the concrete, the bare concrete, as the opera house, we have just untreated concrete. The concrete construction in the match was all sandblasted, so all the columns and all that big slab in the circle, that was all sandblasted concrete 
Whereas the opera house is just smooth. I hate the opera house. It looks mm. like it's not finished. Mm. Uh, so that had texture. Then, of course, they combined velvet panels everywhere uh, with timber. So you had concrete, timber, velvet. It was actually a very beautiful theatre when it first opened. It had yeah. a, a pattern curtain called the Phoenix. And you'd walk in the, in the front door and you'd, there'd be that stairwell going That's up right. to the, the, uh, red the dress circle with yes. red carpet. The carpet was the, a one-off. The touches of gold everywhere. Yes, the, um, the carpet was designed specifically for the Madge. So a lot of the stuff in the Madge, the seats, we had the first high-back seats in, in any theatre in the world, which are now, if you go to the Reginald Theatre in the Seymour, Seymour Centre, Centre right. they have the Madge seats. Oh, right. I went to see a play there a few weeks ago and I said to my friends, I said, you do realise we're sitting on Her Majesty's seats and the uh, Hayes had them too but they've got new seats now and they were the first high back seats of any theatre in the world yes it's a huge loss the Madge um, it was but the thing about even that theatre you, you'd walk stage. into it you could you could sense the ghosts of, right. of shows past and, and, right. and, and, and people who've worked there past yeah, yeah, even it though great. it was modern it was great yeah and when you read the brief now Williamson's ran out of money it was supposed to have a timber ceiling in the auditorium not plaster so when you walked in you had your cream coloured bricks and a cream ceiling which looked a bit bland but of course that was offset by the pattern curtain which was only used twice the pattern curtain was used for night music which they used to take it up five minutes before uh, and it was used on Pippin and then Freddie Carpenter when he did Irene said I hate that curtain I don't want to use it so we got a plain gold curtain then for Irene but then Irene came back so because Pippin flopped they brought Irene back from Melbourne to Sydney and he said, get rid of that curtain again. And then Irene ran for about 12 weeks. When they got uh, the curtain down after Irene, the fire curtain had leaked oil on it. It was a velvet applique. Hung up the back of the stage for about 15 years. Then it was rolled up in a trunk, never used again. $33,000 curtain. Mr Green, your knowledge and passion is extraordinary. Um, what do you love most about your job? Uh, well, working in theatre, uh, seeing the shows, racing up and watching your favourite numbers. So you still get a, or, after so many years, oh, you yeah, still get yeah, yeah, yeah. a buzz, electricity oh, out of just, seeing a live show. Yeah. Yeah. Even um, even the bad ones? Yeah, well, <laughs> this year in New York, we saw the worst musical I think I've ever seen in my life, SpongeBob at the Palace. We only went to see it because well, I wanted to say goodbye to the Palace. Right. Because they're going to rise the Palace, as you know, lift it up. Uh, but I still get a buzz out of an overture walking into a theatre with a curtain down with a fringe with the footlights on yep. which you don't see that much now because so, so many of the shows have even cut overtures which I get very annoyed I, a friend of mine te- used to teach at NIDA and he used to say to me he said oh overtures are old hat you don't need overtures anymore and I said well that's just another nail in the coffin because that mm. was just you know and even the producers they that had an overture when you buy the there's nothing album. more romantic than exactly. an overture and then yeah. on the notes it says this overture is not in the show anymore because we felt it slowed it down they just a plane for two seconds so I get very bitter about that because overtures used to it creates you know, atmosphere it exactly. sets the world of the play and letting um, the people letting the idiots know it's starting whereas when they just start the audience is still talking they're unsettled they don't even realise if the show's beginning or what the lights just go out and stuff so yeah I still get a buzz and I still get a buzz going to the state when I'm in the state and at the Orpheum going to see films that they had a 4k restoration of King and I a few weeks ago at the Orpheum. Well, I think the Orpheum is the best place in Sydney to see a film. The sound. And of course, I think I told you in May, 20th of May this year, they have a Carousel 4K restaurant. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. Which I'll be letting you know about that before you see that. I'll be there. Especially in Sydney. Exactly. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Ayers. Now, I thought this was just archival. That wasn't going out live. Stuart Green is a wealth of information, historical information about uh, theatres, live venues and cinemas in Sydney. I can thoroughly recommend his tour of the State Theatre. He's a a fantastic personality, as you've heard, and uh, a terrific bloke. So um, book at the State Theatre for those tours. Highly recommended. Highly recommended.